even if I ran away, your love never fails. I know I still make mistakes, but you have new mercies for me every day. Your love
Philippians chapter 3, we are in week 8 of our sermon series, chapter by chapter, word by word, through the letter of Paul to the Philippians. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you, Uh, and so uh, Philippians chapter 3, as you're turning there, I will read. We're looking at verses 1 through 10, or 1 through 11, excuse me. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, that word can refer to both. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What a wonderful verse. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible... I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Whew, got a heavy text for us this morning. This is good stuff. This letter takes an abrupt turn. Paul, by mentioning, finally shows that he is kind of nearing the end of the letter, although, just like any good preacher does, as he says, finally, he still has a lot more to say at the end of his letter. My goal this morning is to bring you to be lost in wonder at Paul's words. This passage is remarkable for many reasons, but for one specific one is that it contains some of the most treasured words about our Lord Jesus Christ and the glory and the wonder that we should have for him that surpasses all other in our hearts. In Jesus is all rightness, or better said, righteousness. That's a Christianese word, right? I, I, you know, Googled things, as we all do, and just typed in the word righteousness and hit news and hit other modern things. Only thing that really pops up is Christian stuff. Righteousness is often found in Christian literature, Christian articles, Christian writings. Um, however, the word righteous is more in our culture today, but we'll talk about that later. But in Jesus is all rightness. I like that word rightness, right? Communicates what the word righteousness means. There is no wrong in our Lord. There is no shadow of darkness. There is no selfish hidden agenda or motives or power grabs or anything that's, that's this, this evil found in our Lord. He is perfect. The fancy word, this is funny, is impeccable, right? That's what the nerdy theologians like to say. It reminds me of chickens, right? But that's the idea. It's, he's impeccable. He's, there's no flaw in him. And he himself is turning our hearts and attention to the things that are right and true, Within us. 
This passage begins with Paul's appeal to joy through way of reminder. And the passage itself goes immediately into a working out of true rightness. What does it mean to be in the right before God? What does it mean to stand in the right before God himself? I get to hear people's responses about this question first time regularly whenever they hear I'm a pastor. I think I shared this before. I like to not to tell people that initially because the responses can be like one of shutting down and me not be able to have a real conversation anymore because they don't know what to do. Like, oh, it's a pastor. And it's like, ah. But it happens too much because people have this religious guilt they carry, right? Some kind of guilt for just not doing enough in their life that justifies this idea of God and me and what about his attitude towards me? What if I haven't done enough, right? And so usually when I mention, you know, uh, uh, I'm a pastor, this, this kind of resume of uh, all the, 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 the religious things they've done that maybe justifies them, to say like, I've done X, Y, Z, and, you know, I'm religious too, you know, and it's like an instant response. It's fascinating every time, right? Because this impulsive guilt seems to lie within so many. It's very, very common. But one time in New Jersey, after a blizzard hit, when we were living there, I had two gentlemen show up with shovels in my front yard and began shoveling. And I was like, hey guys, I appreciate it, but you know, I don't have like any money. Or it was like, well, we don't charge much. And I was like, I just don't have any cash. Like, I don't have any cash. And they looked at me and I realized, you know, they were missing some teeth. These, these were addicts and they were probably already tripping on something. And they started walking up to me. And I realized, I think I might be in trouble here. And they kind of both got on both sides of me, and they had their shovels in their hand, and I, it was not a, the best-looking scenario. And I'm a little skinny guy. I don't know how to fight or anything. And I'm like, oh, Lord, what do I do? Like, how do I respond to this? Do I really have to, like, start brawling here? And, you know, then I was like, I, those church, in those days, I was pastoring a mobile church, and our uh, bot truck was in my driveway. I had the job of driving the bot truck. And I was like, I know. I was like, hey, guys, I'm a pastor. Uh, I would love to pray for you. This, what can I pray for you for? Uh, you know, I love God, and he loves you. And I started telling him the gospel, and their eyes got big. And one guy did this, right? And then I was like, come in, you know, let's, I have a cup of hot tea. Let's talk about Jesus. You know, let him in the house. We prayed for him. My wife kind of remembers this, you know. And I, I kind of used the fear of God to my advantage <laughs> because I could tell they had a— I was hoping it would work, and it actually kind of did, Right? Their fear prevented them, if they had an agenda, which maybe they didn't, but it looked like they did, of doing anything to me. The fear kind of worked in my favor in that way, right? But religious guilt exists because of this deep insecurity that says, am I doing enough for God? What if I am not doing enough for him? How do I know that I'm actually a Christian? How do I know if I'm in right standing before him? Even for so many of you who have been walking with Jesus for a long time, we are not past this struggle. It can take various forms. Sometimes we think our church attendance is enough. We think our tithe dollars is enough to make us right before God. We think that we keep doing our part in the church world, right? That keeps us in right standing before God. Or if you are given a special privilege or a title or office at the church, that you are doing so much for him, that you are definitely more now in the right with him, and he's extra happy with you, right? Or in the negative, we can wallow in guilt by looking at our own life and thinking, what am I doing? How can God love somebody as much of a screw-up as me? I haven't done enough for Jesus. I don't even know if I'm actually, does he actually love me? All this boils down to our understanding of righteousness. What does it mean to be righteous? And what does it mean to have a righteousness before God? In this passage, Paul seems to warn this church rather abruptly 
right, uh, toward, uh, towards the Philippian church of this internal threat that was in the early church, this immature early church that was brand new, a few decades old. And this early church didn't quite, well, the biggest hurdle for them was they didn't quite understand the relationship between Torah and what we find in now what we call our Old Testament, Torah, which is the word law, is referring to primarily Genesis through Deuteronomy. They weren't quite sure how to understand all the regulations found in there, understand the new covenant in Christ, and how these things worked. And some early Jewish Christians, you'll read this in the book of Galatians as well, they were uh, thinking that the sign of the old covenant, which was circumcision, still needed to be had among Christians if they were to be in the right before God, if they were to be considered in the family of God. Now, for many of us today, the majority of us today, this isn't really a conversation that we have today. But however, the early church began as essentially a Jewish sect that was initially just a branch of first century Judaism, and this conversation was a huge deal for them. It was a big deal because there had developed in this ancient Jewish world in the first century what I would, you know, could call a very unbiblical understanding of Gentiles or non-Jews among these ancient Jews that did not really represent scriptures if you read it carefully. So much so that when Peter was called to go talk to Cornelius, a Roman centurion, a Gentile of Gentiles, okay, a pagan of pagans, when he was called to go share the gospel with him in Acts chapter 10, Peter says, you know that Jews can't walk in the house of a Gentile, meaning Peter's indirectly admitting, I've never stepped foot in a Gentile's house before, right? You know this isn't lawful for me, but apparently God is calling for a new day here. And he shares the gospel, and the Spirit falls, and he's like, wow, even Romans can now be in the family of God. This is wild. This is a big deal for the early church, right? And this struggle kind of persisted on uh, in this early church. Do Christians need to take the sign of circumcision to show that they belong to the people of God? Do they need to take this on as if Israel's spiritual borders have now been opened up to Gentiles as well? God commanded circumcision to Abraham and thus to be in the right standing before God and to be a part of the people of God. Do we not need to take this sign of the old covenant as well? If you're not really familiar with biblical stories and history, I know that I'm making some assumptions that you're familiar with this story. Many of you might be, but just bear with us as we work through this because this text is a little heavy this morning when we come into this stuff. But all these questions and more we will be wrestling with this morning. The answers to them might be a little surprising. I'm going to challenge you guys a little bit, okay? Because I've been challenged a lot. Uh, with my understanding of some of these things. Uh, This is a really hard sermon to prepare. I spent way more time than I normally do on the sermon trying to figure out how do I get this stuff out. This is a lot, okay? And so I I hope that the Spirit of God is, is faithful this morning through me. So let's start working through this verse by verse. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. So Paul apparently has either written the previous letter or he has preached these things before to them, and he is uh, reminding them. All right, he says, look out for the dogs. 
That's the traditional way that Jews actually, in, that, in those days, referred to non-Jews, right? It was a, it was a rough word, okay? Um, and Paul is using it against these, this internal Christian. These are Christians he's talking about inside of the early church, right? But Paul is actually aiming, yeah, at the other church here. But again, as we join this kind of, I gave the illustration, this is like a one-sided telephone conversation, okay? Uh, we're hearing one side of the conversation. We weren't there at the Philippian church to know all the deep intricacies of the issues that we're facing, so we have to do our homework to figure out why would Paul just go into this rant out of nowhere? It's like, finally, look out for the dogs. It's like, where are you going, Paul? Where did this come from? Did he have like an ADD moment? Like, you know, like I do, I have the time, like, I don't think so, right? If you received the letter, you would have known what's going on. It's like, well, I know why he's talking about this. I know what he's talking about. So we have to do our homework to understand why he went on this rant against these, this internal Christian kind of group inside of the church, okay? Um, if you were to travel back in time, let's play a little game here. Let's all go back in time. And let's, let's, let's pretend like we're an ethnic Jew in the first century beneath Roman rule in the first century Judaism, okay? Which has a lot of differences from modern day manifestations of it. It's 2,000 years ago. And so let's go back and let's kind of think, try to think like an ethnic Jew living in the first century, okay? Um, all the scholarly work done by E.P. Sanders and so many others the past 30, 40, 50 years has really been aiming to do that. Look at all the historical documents and all these background, you know, like, how are they thinking in those days? Because that's kind of the lens that we can understand Christianity through when it was talking about this. And so, anyway, I think we can sum it up in two ways, okay? What made you right before God if you were an ethnic Jew in the first century in Israel, the world that Jesus was living in? I think there's about two ways that the argument would have been made. Your ethnicity as a Jew made you right before God. Number two, your faithfulness to Torah and the law found in Genesis through Deuteronomy. I think it's a very easy way to sum up that conversation. And now, of course, we could break down what they meant by faithfulness to Torah, to the law, which is very long and very complicated. A different day we can perhaps do that. But what we need to know this morning is that the early Jewish Christians, still kind of stuck in this mode of thinking, didn't quite know what to do when the Holy Spirit was falling on Gentiles, right? Claiming to worship the same God they did. Therefore, even if they were not ethnic Jews, they said, well, I don't know. I think you still need to take on some of this law that Moses wrote, right? Because it's still standing. We need, we need to take on some of those things. And Paul goes on blast mode, right? He like gets hyped up and goes on blast mode towards these teachers. And then he does a little bit of kind of bragging himself, but only to prove a point. First, speaking to Roman Gentile Christians in Philippi, perhaps there's a, there's a small Jewish community in Philippi that found like one synagogue, but there wasn't much. And so we can assume that very few of these Christians receiving the letter would have been actually ethnically Jewish, Mostly, that would have been Roman or Gentile, okay? He says, guys, we are the circumcision. Well, how are Romans, Gentiles, who probably weren't, you know, uh, circumcised or probably weren't, how would Paul say we are the circumcised or considered in the people of God? Because they worship, according to Paul, by the Spirit of God and they glory in Christ Jesus. That's his response. So briefly, what he's saying is if you really want to be a part of God's family— you need the Spirit of God, not an external sign, but rather an internal one. And in fact, this should have been nothing new. The whole point of the external sign in our Old Testaments in the Torah was to aim towards the heart, because Moses actually said this off the bat in Deuteronomy 20, uh, chapter 10, verses 12 through 17. He actually said, Israel, circumcise your hearts. This was a message from day one. 
Paul in Romans 11 describes Israel as this olive tree that in Christ, Gentiles have been grafted into it, these wild shoots that do not belong. But we've been grafted in. Foreigners have been joined to Israel as the prophets foretold. And the walls of hostility has been broken down between them. Time and time again, the prophet said this was going to come. There's a slew of Bible verses that talk about it. And it has through the work of Christ and the unleashing of the Spirit. Jesus fulfilling all the law has stretched the tent of Israel to include all peoples, as Isaiah foretold in uh, 57, I think it was. Far from some sort of supersessionism or replacement idea of the church overriding Israel, the truth seems to be something on the lines that Israel has only radically grown and expanded to include anybody who is in Christ. Anyone now can be in the people of God through the work of Christ and can be given a soft heart and a new heart in him. And more on that in a moment. So Paul then digresses a bit. He says, look, do they think these things really matter? If they matter, well, then I should be the expert in-house. I should know all about these things, even more so, because if these things make you in the right before God, then I have all the confidence in the world. This is Paul's resume. He kind of pulls out this little rap sheet and says, let me show you, if that's the, the teaching you want to cling to, how I am the master in that world. He says this, if anyone thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised in the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So from Paul's words, we learn of how the early Jews understood being in the right before God, right? These early Jews, generally speaking, said in two ways. We talked about that, right? The ethnicity and the faithfulness, right? And Paul says, you can't get more Jewish than me. I'm a Hebrew, uh, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? You, you can't get more Jewish. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, right? And then the, the kingdom split in the Old Testament. Um, Benjamin stayed with Judah, right? So they had a, they've garnered a lot of respect. And it, Paul was like, that's my family. That's where I'm from. Even before Paul was a Christian, they called him Saul. That was his name, right? He's like, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin. You, I'm through and through. That's me. The second marker that we see Paul claiming is this faithfulness to Torah. He says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, you couldn't get more zealous to me because I actually persecuted Christians. I was trying to wipe them out. He stood before Stephen as, was, as, as he was getting murdered. And Paul was like, uh-huh, this is good, right? Well, Saul at that time, right? It's like, you can't get more zealous than I was. And in that world, as they considered the, the righteousness found under the law, he's like, I was blameless. I was killing it. You couldn't get more blameless than me, Right? But if righteousness were found by ethnicity and faithfulness to Torah, Paul says, I win. But why would he mention this? What is he trying to say is that these, if these false teachers were correct, surely he says uh, that he would have been teaching this. Like if these guys are correct, I would have been teaching this, guys, because I would be on top in that world, right? But Paul then takes an extraordinary turn, an extraordinary turn. And he says, but whatever I had gained... I accounted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let's not rush past these words. 
I know we've been deep into some crazy biblical history this morning, and that's okay. I want to slow down right now. Make sure I'm talking slow. I get worked up and excited. I'm going to talk slow. Once again, Paul looks back to this idea of the master story. I've been talking about time and time again in Philippians chapter 2. If there was anything that he could be, that could be gained in his former life under Judaism, he says, I lost it all. I lost it all. He got his books out. And he was looking at his profits and losses in his life. He looked at all of his previous works and all of his previous resume, and he moves it over to the loss category because he gave it all up. He didn't cling to it. He didn't shift everything over to the loss category because there was only a—he did shift everything over to the loss category only because there was a single word written in the profit category, which was that of Jesus Christ. And then he goes a step farther. Like a madman, Paul starts throwing everything into that loss category. Everything. He says, not just my former life in Phariseeism, not just my identity as a Hebrew, not just my zealous faithfulness to Torah. No, 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 no. Everything. Everything is counted as loss. Because none of it has impact on my right standing before God. Nothing. Because nothing can compare to me knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Nothing compares. Nothing. Ladies and gentlemen, friends, what makes you most proud in life? What makes you feel like you have any sort of value or worth or meaning? Where lies, what lies in your gain category that without, you wouldn't know what value you have as a human being? If you got your books out, what lies in that gain category that says, oh, that's me. That's me because of I done this, because I did that. What accomplishment? What ethnicity do you have? What gender? All, there's so many things that could be in that profit category that you look at and say, that's me because of that. But the New Testament's clear. There is neither male nor female in Christ. There's no Jew or Gentile in Christ. There's no slave or barbarian. There's neither black nor white nor Hispanic nor rich nor poor nor homeless nor having a home nor living in this neighborhood or that one nor being a victim of abuse or a former addict or even a current addict, all those things do not define who you are. Your standing before God is not dependent on your church attendance and office you held there, which you have done or haven't done for Jesus. is not dependent on how much you've tithed or how much you haven't tithed. We are in Christ, and in that we are in right standing before God. In fact, if any of these things compete with knowing Jesus, they need to be tossed over to that lost category. Because ultimately, they do not define who you are. Ultimately, they do not make you closer with Jesus or make him more pleased with you or bring any more value to your life. The next verse, Paul actually calls these things rubbish. Literally, it means garbage. The wonderfully smelly things you find in the dumpster or even some translations, the wonderfully smelly things you find in the bottom of a porter potty. That's how you are to consider them in light of Christ. It is not dependent on any of those things. Nothing compares to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. We must look at our hearts and identify our greatest passions in life and say, does knowing Jesus surpass them? This is really hard for us Americans. I don't know who I was talking about this week with, but um, we were just talking about, one of you, how um, nobody is pointing a gun in our face 
in our nation and saying, do you believe in Jesus? What's your answer? That's happening around the world. People literally are losing everything for Jesus. There is no half in or half out. Their families, their vocations, everything is lost when they accept Christ. And even more so now, I think, than any other period in church history are we seeing Christians being persecuted and being killed for their faith. Some people are faced with literally having to lose everything. But us Americans, right, we have it rather easy, but also at the same time rather difficult because what, perceived, what is perceived as easy is actually really hard because nobody's pressuring you saying either believe or, you know, you're dead. Or uh, if you confess Christ, you're dead. Nobody's doing that to us, right? So we're faced with a choice. We're faced with these this temptations of all this idolatry and other groups to find identity in and this or that. And we have to really ask the question, where is the loves of my heart gained? Where, where are they aiming towards? What has got a hold of my affections more than anything else? Right? That's our story here in America. Our story, our temptations involve things like money and power and, and sex and drugs and experiences and materials and leisure time and the desire to be loved by all, to be wanted by all, to be liked to be happy, there's so many things that we can have as surpassing value in our life that competes with our Lord. But all of those things are to be counted as loss in Christ. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Where is your heart found this morning? But more importantly, to have our hearts in the right place, we must understand how we are to be loved by God. For the eternal, glorious, and all-powerful, majestic, and holy God to love us, for him to meet all of our needs and all of our inner desires, because, guys, he is the very key that will unleash fulfillment and meaning and purpose in our life because we were created to be with him. Eternity is found in the heart of man, says Solomon, the author of Ecclesiastes, right? We try to fill that void of all this junk, thinking that that can bring satisfaction and finally bring meaning. And it's just a never-ending hole because a never-ending hole needs to be filled with a never-ending God, that is why we were created. And the message of Christianity says he can be yours. In fact, he wants to unleash himself on you right now and fill you with himself to bring satisfaction to your very souls. That's what he wants to do. If we were to hold him in all-consuming passion or worth, how are we to know that we will not be rejected by him? Is that not the source of all of this religious guilt that we have? right? We want those things to be true, but we still have this guilt of like, oh, I just don't think I'm like, I've, I've earned that. I don't think I've done enough, right? Is this not why the false teachers were, uh, or Paul got so mad at them? Because he's saying it's enough. Jesus has done enough. There's no more plus anything. There's no Jesus plus this or Jesus plus that. It's done. He can be, have, he can, he can be ha had by you right now without doing anything else because the work is accomplished, right? He says this, I'm getting ahead of myself. How do we know, right? Here's the answer. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, says Paul, and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Suffered the loss of all things. And be found in him, 
not having a righteousness, there's that word, of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. True right standing before God depends on what? What did you guys see? Faith. And it's not your own doing. The word is pistis for faith, and it is not just mere cognitive belief. And so I want to stretch you guys and push you guys, right? And again, like I say, if you think I'm saying crazy things, well, you know, uh, let's have a conversation. I don't know, prove me, challenge me with these things, right? I'm being challenged by them, okay? Pistis, belief, faith. It, it's not just mere uh, intellectual assent or cognitive belief. It is, but it's much more than that. It is a confession of allegiance, a confession of loyalty that one gives toward a king. It certainly implies belief, but it's much more. This is why we see sometimes uh, in Romans 1, Romans 16, some other places elsewhere, English translations try to work this out, and they call it the obedience of the faith, right? That's an effort to capture the idea of allegiance, right? Of a belief that is towards a king that says, all of me is yours. All of me is yours, the law or any other system that we can devise to please God or be included in his family or to be in the right before him, for Paul, um, it was in the law, right? That was his former life. And for us, it could be some other law that requires our own efforts and work to please God or to be found accepted before him or another carefully devised law or system that can somehow provide meaning and justification for this skin and bones that we have something that gives you a purpose to walk around in day to day, anything of the sort that's not Jesus will only create within you insecurity. It will always leave you unsure of your standing before God, unsure of your value as a human being, unsure if God actually loves you or not. It's because you were fallen and all those things are adequate to save you. A fascinating thing. I'm going to get a little crazy here, but just bear with me. Transgenderism in some cities has increased 700% amongst teenage girls between 14 and 17. Something most of these have uh, in common after all these studies have been done, these people that are devoting, the question was why 700% increase? Like what is going on? Something more than just nature is happening. What is happening? What do these people have in common in these different studies within that age category of on those young teenage girls? Broken homes. Some unique personalities that make them a little bit socially awkward and hard to make friends. Some of the more loner types who may enjoy a quiet corner in the back of the cafeteria. Young people who are looking for love and identity and purpose and meaning. And evidence shows that a lot of this transgenderism in teenagers is really just potentially a cry for meaning for inclusion amongst a group of people who will love them and accept them for, for who they are. We can relate to that, can we not? Because you and I have the same drives often in our life. We think affirmation from some group of people could provide meaning for us if we only gain enough accolades to do it. That hunger for meaning and purpose is just another hunger for God himself, for that eternal stamp of approval on your life that says your life matters. But all those things will only leave you feeling insecure and incomplete 
and in need of something else, they will fail you. You need another righteousness. You need a more secure one that's not up to you. You need another stamp of approval that's not from this person or that group. You need a stamp of approval from one who is eternal, from the very one who gave you life and breath. You need the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that has been gained in your behalf, that is dependent on faith and allegiance to Jesus. Only in Jesus can you be found in right standing before God. Only in Christ can you find yourself a part of this new family that is not identified by race or gender or accomplishments or any other identity markers of value. No, for in Christ, the entire playing field is leveled. In Christ, you receive his spirit who gives you a new heart, as Ezekiel looked forward to, to worship God, to devote all of yourself to him. In him is the fullness of joy. In him do you receive a light burden and a soft yoke, as Jesus said. In him do you receive all forgiveness from your sin. In him you receive back your true humanity from the Son of Man. In him you receive eternal life. And in him you are secure until the day he returns when he makes all things new. As we aim to bring this sermon to a close, I want to closely look at these last few verses. I want to maybe dispel something about the Christian life that I've had to unwork in my own heart. Paul is careful to describe our righteousness found in Christ through faith, but he immediately shows why he desires to be found in Christ, to be in the right before God in Christ. Why does he want this? What is the draw for Paul? I want to pay careful attention to this in our closing. He goes into a string of things here that he gains in Christ, and he lists them as his motivation for believing and attaching his life to Christ's. I said it before and I'll say it again. Oftentimes we speak of the good news of Jesus as a, uh, essentially an escape card to get into heaven for eternal life, right? And I agree, we go to heaven when we die, if you're in Christ, yes. Um, but this is largely, a lot of studies, you know, the past hundred years or so, largely due to this limiting of the word faith as only meaning cognitive belief, right? And I'm going to argue that it is belief faith that leads to allegiance to Jesus our King. It's a posture of the heart. It's not just belief, but it is a posture to say, I have a new King who demands all of me. That's the posture of faith that we have. I'm going to argue that our new life in Christ is not just about going to heaven. If it were, I believe, if that was the whole point of faith, why wouldn't he just snatch you up right after you believe? It's like, I believe. Good, you're going to heaven. And you're just gone. He doesn't do that right? Some of us wish he would, right? And perhaps maybe that's kind of what's wrong with some of the church today is we don't have a vision of what to do when we're here because God has, he has something for you right now. He has something to do, a transformative work of his spirit in you right now, today. And this is the stuff that Paul talks about in this passage, right? You are given a new life now, Today you are a new creation. Today you are given a new heart of flesh. Today you are in Christ and God has graciously provided you with a new life now. These are the motivating factors for Paul to make Jesus his all-consuming passion. Let's read these things. Paul says he wants to be found in Christ that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. 
to know Jesus, to know him, to know his power, the very power that brought his dead body back to life, the very power that is freely given to us now through the Holy Spirit. And here is the difficult one. Paul wants to make Jesus' all-consuming desire that he may share in his sufferings. Anybody prayed for that recently? Jesus, help me share in your sufferings. That's not a very American prayer, right? But here's Paul saying, this is why I want to be in Christ, that I may share in his sufferings. Whew, that's hard, right? By sharing in his sufferings, it's a prayer of weakness. We are asked to be weakened. Paul's sufferings were were marked because he shared the gospel, the good news. His sufferings were in his life on behalf of his devotion to Jesus. And we know that in our sufferings, Jesus is found strong. And I believe that is why Paul prays this prayer, because he knows that Jesus will be glorified in his sufferings. Now, guys, I've been saying this for weeks now, that the Christian life is one of participation in this master story of Jesus. His story is V-shaped. If you want to draw a little V with your hands, the whole idea is that Jesus— Right? He was up in heaven, right? But he said, all this glory that I have up here, I'm going to give up. I'm going to count it as a loss and go down and, and take the form of a servant. And all of my divinity enter into flesh and, and be identified with the lowest on earth, only to die for the sins of my people that I may be brought back up in exaltation. It's V-shaped. And we, right, are being asked and invited by Paul as he lists his things out to join him in this V-shaped life. If there's an analogy to be given from this, like it hit me this morning, I was like, oh, this is it. And if I ever booked the right one day, maybe it'll be this, right? C.S. Lewis once said this. He said, if you ever want to make a new friend, you know, how do you say it? He said, friendship starts the moment you meet somebody and you say, oh, me too, right? It's a clever way of C.S. Lewis-ism. He's a clever guy. But the idea was there's a shared interest, right? There's a shared something that said, yeah, me too. And there's a bonding that happens. If you want to truly love your neighbor or somebody else, and you enter into their life, and as they are suffering, you take on that burden yourself, and you, you cry with them, and you weep with them, and you're walking through life with them. When it's all said and done, how close is your bond with that person? It's way deeper than it was before because there's a shared experience and a shared life that was had that grows your affection towards that person in ways that somebody else who didn't have that between you and that person couldn't relate to, right? This is how we can look at this Christian life. By, by entering to this, Jesus is saying, look, this was the way that I lived and it glorified God and I'm inviting you to share in this life now. Share in the way that I lived and how I loved people and how I was willing even to suffer on behalf of them and to save them. We know we can't save anybody else, but when we take on another person's burdens and say, how can I help you and love you and show you the love of Christ right now? We are joining Jesus and his story. You know what happens? The amazing thing is that we can look to Jesus and we can begin relating to him on a deeper level. We are found to be in deeper intimacy with our Lord Jesus as we end up sharing in his life. And that is what is called the union of Christ, the in Christ passages in the New Testament. And then we become like a, this, this flat 
Play-Doh ball that's been smashed down, and, and we have, um, this is my father talking here, we have his little, you know, uh, indention things he makes shapes out of Play-Doh. He's, he starts forcing his indention shape on our life and says, yes, yes, be like me, live like me, yes, love like me. It's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. You may have to give things up for me, but I'm telling you, this world needs my love, and it's going to come through you, and it may come through an expensive way through your life. Are you willing to do this? And we look to our world and we see how hurting our world is. And we see how desperate our world is in need of love in our nation right now. And now the moment is greater than ever to have a group of Christians say, Yes, I want to share in your life, Jesus. Fill me with your spirit. Imprint on me your own life. At whatever cost it may come, may I go and share the good news of Jesus and my friends and my family, my neighbors, take on their burdens, live life with them, serve them, meet their needs as I tell them about you. That is the mission of the church. So as we close, I have a few questions. Have you found ultimate meaning in your life in anything outside of Jesus? Number two, have you allowed yourself to think any sort of right standing before God is in some checklist of deeds rather than being found in Christ. Number three, is your membership in any group or ethnic or gender or social, has it consumed your identity to where you primarily think of yourselves as belonging to that group rather than belonging in Christ? Number three, this is a, whatever. Can you identify your faith in Christ apart from your identity as a American or belonging to a political party or not belonging to a political party. I know I might be in hot water for bringing up that kind of stuff. It's election season. We have to talk about these things because it's crazy, right? Um, Jesus was not an American. We said it before. He does not belong to one of these political parties. Our identity in Christ is up and above all of those things. And him is the greatest hope for this world. The resurrection. He's the one who can mend all things right. Not a political party or not somebody staying or being elected into office. Number five, are you resisting the work? And this we're close with this. Are you resisting the work of the Spirit in your life right now? Have you prevented yourself from truly entering into Jesus' story, seeing the world through his eyes and sharing in his life in order that you may know him truly and be an ambassador for him? For that is why the Spirit is given to us. The hope of the world is in Christ, but Christ is in you. So in a way, if there's hope for the world, by the power of God and by his help, it's placed on his church. Far from a guilt-ridden trip of, oh, I gotta obey Jesus because he died for me and I feel guilty about him doing all that for me, so I gotta do something for him. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about participating and being conformed to the very heart of God by his spirit and allowing him to do his grand and mighty work of reconciliation through us. And what is in it for us? Maybe pain? An open hand of generosity? It may cost your checkbook a lot of money, right? Your time? But joy, joy that surpasses any other joy to be found in this world that will be met with eternal life, with our Lord forever and ever. Let me pray. Jesus, um, I know this is a longer sermon and just said so many things. I don't even know if anything I said made sense. 
But Lord, if, if anything I said this morning was from your spirit, may that stick. Lord, I, I, as, as we enter into this new chapter of Emmanuel, we just want to be shaped and conformed to your image. With all of my heart, Lord, that's what I pray. And that's a work that I can't do. That's a work that none of us have any authority to do, but only your spirit does. May he be active in, in, in that, in getting the word to be that, that piercing sword that just starts dividing us up, Lord. If there's sin or, or oppression or things that lie deep in our heart that need to be released and given over to you, Lord, that you may freely work in us, Lord. You are a gracious God, forgiving us 77 times 7. And this last time of song, if, if anybody here needs prayer, uh, just I, I pray that would grab somebody next to them. Come grab me or come grab somebody and just, just pray. Pray these things, Lord. May your spirit be mighty at work in our church this morning. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your good name. Amen.